Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels part 65. Last week we saw where Jesus and his closest disciples came off of the mountain after the transfiguration story. And similarly, like when Moses came off the mountain after receiving the law, uh, he, Moses, and Jesus come down to find a lot of chaos happening with the people and having to address that. In Jesus' circumstance, it was this father with a son who had been tormented by an unclean spirit since he was basically a young boy. And scribes were arguing amongst themselves and the people probably about the correct way to perform this exorcism. And then we went into the nitty-gritty details of this man's wrestling with his belief and his unbelief. Yeah. Um, And Jesus responding with, I mean, compassion, but matter-of-factness as well to showcase that, like, anything is capable when you're putting your faith in the God who controls all things in the fabric of our reality and universe. And then after Jesus healed the boy, the the disciples were asking why they couldn't do it. And then we looked at the language differences, how it may not be Jesus belittling them about their little faith, but asking them, do you think it's because you don't have enough faith? And that's not the case because even with little faith, you can do great things for me and my kingdom. So really, we really loved that section and now we're getting ready to move on from there good stuff things you're not even sure you know you don't is it really that is it not that is it something well okay you're you're not sure but good good stuff to really sink your brain's teeth into can you say it that way is that a weird image all right yeah all right but let's go on see what else is happening uh because the truth is they're going to move around some more I mean, these are some mobile first century Jews, if you know what I'm saying. So Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, and Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 45. I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And now, just to fill it out a little bit, there's a little bit in Matthew 17.23, he says, He will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Okay, slightly different. Here's Luke's uh, 9.45. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So that's some different, different views about what was really going on there. 
So let's try and figure out what is being said and what should we take away from it. So we're pretty much done with our little excursion off to Caesarea Philippi. Now, when you read Luke's, it doesn't quite sound so much that way, but we're just going to go with it. We're, we're coming back toward the Galilee now, or in and around the Galilee. And now the whole group is back, and, and Jesus, he still wants to maintain a low profile. He didn't really want anyone to know that he was back. He wanted to continue teaching his disciples. And if you remember, we talked about this when they went towards Caesarea Philippi. That was kind of their primary purpose when they went on that trip. So Jesus kind of wants to keep it up. Now, somewhere near Capernaum, at least that's probably where we are, Jesus tells his disciples again that he must die at the hands of men. And he adds, again, that he's going to rise after three days or on the third day, whichever. Now, you remember, Samuel, Jesus told them this before. When was that? Right after the transfiguration. It was right was saying, before. Oh. Yeah. Well, wasn't, wasn't there something that he said about not telling them what happened until the Son of Man is, will be raised. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. They did that too. That's okay. right. Yeah. But yeah, even even before the actual transfiguration, he told them that he was going to die and he was going to be raised. And and so now here he is telling them again. Now, we, like usans today, we look back, we've got the beauty of hindsight. You know, it appears so clear what actually did happen or, you know, what must happen, what should have happened, whatever. But for these guys, this, this couldn't have been very easy. And so what th- this is telling us that they didn't understand, and you heard Luke even went so far as to say that it was concealed from them so that they could not understand. And these poor guys, all they really knew was that they didn't like it. Matthew uses the word distressed. Now, this could mean like they, they, they were angry or enraged about it. Or it could mean that they were grieving about it. Uh, it could just be something a little more general, like they're just suffering some sort of unhappiness. Well, whatever they're feeling, it also tells us they were afraid to ask him about it, what it really meant. Now, on one hand, and you can imagine this, Samuel, maybe they didn't really want to know. You know, it's like the, what, what do we do? We put our, put our hands in our ears and blah, 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 <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me that. But remembering back to the last time that Jesus told them this, what do you, why do you think they might be afraid to ask him about it this time? Well, Peter didn't fare very well after that interaction, so they probably don't want to repeat his mistake. Exactly. Yeah, that was when Peter got the old, get behind me, Satan, right? So, yeah, I'd be afraid to ask too. So, if you just try to put yourself back in this place, in this time, in their shoes, man, this would have been a hard, hard thing to hear and... Especially, especially if like what Luke is saying is real, that it was actually concealed from them. There was some sort of supernatural thing going on. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
this contextual detail that I'm bringing up, I know it probably feels weird to hear it, but I'm based on what I've learned, it's true. Um, in first century Jewish culture, the only relationship that would have been at the same level or potentially higher, more intimate than a father-son relationship would be a student and his rabbi's relationship. Like yeah. That shows how close and intimate and special that relationship is and what yeah. a rabbi means in a young man's life. And so there, there is a fatherly aspect to that relationship. And so, you know, anybody listening, like if you can put yourself into your shoe, into their shoes of like being, I don't know, let's say anywhere between 13 and 18 years old and hearing your father or your father figure say like, yeah, just letting you know, guys, like pretty soon, like I'm going to die. And <laughs> there's no way to make that hard, uh, less hard to hear. Right, yeah. It would have been very intense. Very, very intense. So now the funny thing is the the I don't know, sort of the the feeling, the personality of the the stories, uh, we just we just kind of drop right there. You know, this whole thing going to Caesarea Philippi and all the things that came during and after seemed, you know, it's a little bit intense. It's kind of a big deal. And now we're going to read in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, and I don't know, things just kind of go back to semi-normal, if you can say that, whatever. Here's what Matthew writes. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right, well, that's kind of a cool story, huh? Weird, whatever. So again, we've sort of left behind all of the heaviness or the intensity of this whole Caesarea Philippi excursion that we were on. And this little section acts, I don't know, kind of like a segue leading to the fourth of Matthew's five discourses. I know we've talked about that a little bit, but that one, it's not yet. This, this is just in between. We'll talk about that maybe in the next section or so when we get there. But we're back in Capernaum, and we have some people who are collecting the annual Jewish temple tax. Now, first of all, this is a really good indicator indicator of what time of year this is. It's just before Passover. This particular tax was always collected at the same time. It was about a month before Passover. Now, interestingly, what we're talking about here, this tax, it comes straight out of Scripture. God is the one who commanded it. Uh, Samuel, you know what? It would help us even if you read it. Go to Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 and 14. 
Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is twenty geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from twenty years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Okay, so you can see how, oh, well, that sounds a lot like what we're doing. And and like in this case, it was each male. You had to be 20 years or older, but you had to pay this tax. Here's the thing, though. Back in Exodus, this was never intended to be an annual tax. It was just a one-time thing. Now, later, okay, so, so when we're reading in Exodus, we're talking about the tabernacle. And then remember, we had the first temple, the one that Solomon built. Now we're in the second temple era. And so it was later, after the Babylonian exile, when they were beginning to build this second temple, Nehemiah instituted a similar kind of tax with regard to that second temple. Now, in that case, it was only a third of a shekel, but it was actually an annual thing. And so it could be that this that we're reading about right here, it is literally just a continuation of that. They, you know, kind of changed the the amount or whatever, but it may have been just a continuation. Anyway, the idea of it, so like if you were alive in the first century, you know, what is this tax all about? Well, it was a way for everyone to participate in the daily offerings and, and other things in the temple. You might think about like the showbread or whatever. It was a way for everyone to, you know, it's kind of like having a little skin in the game, a way to feel like you're a part of all of the things that are going on in the temple. And I, I say that because this was not a hated tax. And the people who would come to collect this tax, they also were not hated. So we've talked a lot in this podcast going through the Gospels about tax collectors and how hated they were and all that, but that's because they were working for and with Rome, collecting taxes for a very different thing. This is not that. So that seems important to get that in your head. Now, here's the thing, <laughs> and I always find this very humorous. Peter is asked, and it's, it's, you got to listen to the way this is worded, Peter's asked if Jesus does not pay the tax. <laughs> I don't know you read that. It was so weird. It's like, yes. Well, was it yes, no, or yes, yes? Exactly. Yeah. And that is exactly what some scholars argue about. Uh, Peter, all he says is yes. And so you've got some scholars who think that it should be taken more like, uh, yes, he doesn't pay. And then others, and I'm going to say most likely us, and, and I think it's probably the majority, they actually read it as, yes, he pays. So, it, it, but it is, it's really interesting, and I don't know how from the text you're supposed to know that you know that you know, but it's just a funny one. But anyway, I think that he does pay, uh, and this is another example, and we're going to see it, you, you know, uh, the rest of the story tells this. It's an example of Jesus willingly participating in laws that are created by men. And, and I mean, specifically, this would be the Jewish leadership, Sanhedrin, etc. And I'm just going to say, this appears to be his norm. He, he obeys all of the laws of Torah, 
perfectly. I mean, that's how you even qualify to be Messiah. But in addition, even all of the traditions of men, the oral Torah, all those things, he seems to go along with all of that unless, unless he finds that they actually contradict with the real purpose, the real essence of Torah itself. But if they don't, he just seems to kind of play along. And so we see it. Jesus kind of uses this situation. It's like a teaching moment. Peter, and this is funny too, and you don't have to read it this way, but this actually makes sense to me. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. And so it appears as though Peter was out doing something by himself. This guy comes up, asks him about the tax. Peter goes back to the house. Jesus is there at the house, and Jesus speaks first. And then if, if that's the case, you've got to wonder, how did Jesus even know that happened? I mean, that's kind of a cool little picture, right? It's good. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we don't know for sure. Maybe Jesus was around, and it's just the way it's worded, and it doesn't have to be that way. Whatever. But he asks Peter this really good question. When you have earthly kings, okay, they're going to collect taxes. It's just kind of, it goes with the territory. But who do they collect them from? Are they taking them from their own sons, or are they taking these taxes from others? Peter, I mean, he's, he's no dummy. He gets it. He gives the obvious answer, the correct answer. They take the taxes from others. And so Jesus sort of delivers the conclusion, the obvious conclusion. The sons, therefore, are free from the tax. Now, the thing is, if you stopped reading right there, you might think that Jesus was going, yeah, so that's why, Peter, we don't pay. But that's not what he does. He goes ahead and tells him, hey, go go fishing, get the money, do the thing. Now, taking that same idea, though, that the sons are free from the text, you, you could say, well, wait a minute, who are the sons of God? On one hand, you could say, well, I mean, that's Israel. Israel, they're the sons of, God, of the king, they're the sons of God, they should have also been free from this tax. And we also know that's true because that's actually in line with the Torah. The one time that they did that tax, it was only supposed to be a one-time thing. And then you go even further and you go, well, Jesus, I mean, he's the true son. He definitely should have been exempt from having to pay this tax. But this only further emphasizes the fact that the annual collection of this tax isn't really appropriate, it doesn't really fit with God's intention, and yet Jesus goes along with it anyway. And it's it's important that we see, but wait a second, what about when he had a problem with the way uh, they were doing Sabbath? Jesus didn't like that. Uh, They were putting extra Sabbath rules on, they were sort of interfering with Torah. Well, Jesus responded to that by going against the tradition, actually, you know, making them mad because he wasn't going to go along with the program. And yet in this case, he just goes along like it's no big deal. In the end, I don't know, you kind of just, it appears that Jesus doesn't think it's worth fighting over. He's, he's just willing to obey the governing authorities, the, the leadership, whatever you want to call it, and just support the temple. He's okay with it. He sends Peter out. 
hey, uh, I'm going to send you out to experience a miracle. Go fishing. The first fish you catch, you're going to have the tax for both of us. Go ahead and pay it. And then, I don't know, it's also kind of funny that the text never tells us what happens. We're just left to assume that it all worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I never thought about that aspect that Jesus was addressing another example of Jewish leadership potentially using part of God's law outside of what God's true intentions for that were. Um, so that's that's really neat. I also wanted to add just a quick contextual detail. I can't prove this. This is, I don't have any specific reference off the top of my head. It came from, again, Marty Solomon. But um, it, this is just in line with the defense of the youthfulness of most of Jesus' disciples. If we go back to that Exodus 30 reference and we focus on the age on who was participating in that tax, it says everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward. So if you take that detail and then you add it to the very end of this part in Matthew where it says whenever Jesus is saying um, to get the money from the fish to pay it, he says in verse 27, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. It's interesting that he didn't say give it, you know, because in some ways the rabbi is responsible for providing for all of his students, and that would include something like this if they were of the age to be held accountable within this tax. But the fact that the text just singles out Jesus and Peter, and we know that Peter is kind of like the ringleader, the the example, the model student in this um, Talmudim group. Um, I just think it's interesting. So yeah. take that for what you will, but it's it's kind of a cool detail. Yeah. Yeah, it is. A, it's a very interesting way to look at it. And we've said this before. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, Marty does, what do you want to call it, age the disciples younger than I would. He He's very willing to put them all the way down to like age 12 or 13. And I'm not going there. I think they were upper teens and possibly into early 20s. But the the point of all of that is just to go, most people get an image of their head in their head of the disciples being in their uh, 20s and 30s at the youngest, and maybe even older than that. And that is definitely a really, really bad picture to have in your head. You need to picture young men. And another thing about that is a 13-year-old today seems really, really, really super young. (laughs) A 13-year-old in first century Israel was probably, they would seem to us much more mature, much more adult mm-hmm. in many ways. So, yeah, but yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really cool image. At least, at least Peter is 20 or more. Mm-hmm. We got that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a good picture, Samuel. Glad you brought it up. Now, again, th- these, um, the stories, they seem to uh, kind of switch context, switch places, switch everything kind of quickly, and that's just the way the Gospels are sometimes, especially as we're trying to go, go through chronologically. Uh, this next bit we're looking at is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, and Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. And I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, kind of good news, bad news. I don't know. (laughs) But the important thing is, at least, I don't know, from a, just so you kind of understand some of the things you'll hear people talk about in Christianity generally, we are now beginning the missionary discourse. Wait, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. This is the beginning of the community discourse. We've already covered the Sermon on the Mount. We covered the missionary discourse and the kingdom parables. And this chapter 18 is known as the community discourse. Now, some people also refer to it as the church discourse, but I avoid that, I avoid that word like the plague because the word church, it just brings with it a ton of misunderstanding. We talked about it. Uh, well, did we talk about it or is that coming up? Somehow, the word church, it's kind of a made-up word. Have we mentioned that before, Sam? Do you remember us talking I, about that? I feel like we have, but I'm, we definitely will <laughs> much more. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it's going to come out more than once. But yeah, it's kind of a made-up word, and, and it gets confused. We are, there was an assembly. There was always an assembly, and, and the whole idea of assembly continues through into the New Testament. And so using the word church just confuses people. But anyway, this is the community discourse. It addresses the now community of all believers, and it also addresses the future community of all believers. So kind of, if you can, keep that in mind. Remember that we're we're in the middle of a Matthew discourse, uh, specifically a big chunk that seems to have something to do with the community, okay? And then to start it off, <laughs> poor disciples, They don't look good all the time in the scripture, do they? Mm -mm. So they have this debate about which of them is the greatest in this new kingdom. Now, they don't actually say it that way in the Matthew version, but in in the Mark version, they argue with one another about who is the greatest, right? So so the idea is there. And it's, it's petty, it's prideful, and oh my gosh, Samuel. Isn't it great that no one does that in churches today? What a relief. Yeah, yeah, we're so lucky. They thought that they were keeping this conversation from Jesus, <laughs> but he knew. <laughs> We've seen him know a lot of stuff. Of course, he knew that. But I want you to notice the similarity of this statement. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And one that was back on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5.20. Samuel, why don't you read that? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Both of them end exactly the same way. So your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees, okay, that's kind of on par with unless you turn and become like children. 
This is a really, really big deal. So let's try and figure out what he's talking about. So to help them, I don't know, maybe get an understanding of what true greatness is, or or maybe it'd be better to say kingdom greatness, because that's different than like our worldly greatness. He uses a child as an example. And so remember, we were in Capernaum. They said they were at the house. It's probably Peter's house. In fact, it's probably one of Peter's kids. And Mark tells us that Jesus sits down. So you know that he's He's in teaching mode. That's a big deal. And Matthew includes some information that that we have to turn and become like children. Uh, Again, to enter the kingdom. So so here's the question, Samuel. Should should Christians be childish? Poopy doopy. Do you think maybe we should have some emotional outbursts? Blame others for things, lie, call each other names, be impulsive, be self-centered, bully one another. And don't forget pooping your pants. Poopy doopy. Oh, there's that. Yeah. And I know I picked a lot of negative traits, but you know, you get the idea. Is that what he means that you have to become like children? Do you do you become childish? No. No. Not at all. What Jesus is alluding to, and but and this is a really good question. Well, if he doesn't mean that, what does he mean? He's alluding to how children very naturally and easily seem to accept their place in the hierarchy of humans of all ages. Now, I realize when kids are together, and the way you might see them playing and interacting together, this isn't so much the case. But when kids are interacting with adults, they're content to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, at least generally. You see it. And and Matthew continues that, that whoever humbles himself in that same manner, meaning they're content to be at the bottom of the hierarchy of anything, everything, all the time, which means they are truly considering others to be greater than themselves. Okay, that person, they're the one that is greatest in the kingdom. And so... He's actually directly answering the debate the disciples were having, and yet we're kind of left with this thing that feels very paradoxical. It's, uh, okay, so what you're saying is, be content being at the bottom of the hierarchy, put everybody else above myself, do all of those things, and somehow then I'm great? It's kind of weird, right? But... All three Gospels, I mean, it's the same kind of wording, same kind of stuff. They're talking about this idea of, uh, he moves on to the next part, receiving one such child. And now this is an important part because he starts out by bringing a child into his midst and he starts talking about him. But by the time he gets to this part about, hey, whoever receives one such child, well, I mean, nobody's going to argue that that doesn't apply to actual children. Of course it could, I mean, it does, but here in this story, in this context, Jesus has moved on beyond the actual physical child, and he's talking about the one who has actually humbled himself like a child. He's turned and become like a child, and so he receives Jesus in that humbleness of heart, and if he's receiving Jesus, we also know that by extension he's receiving God. 
and and this receiving it's kind of like uh there's there's the welcoming or the accepting aspect but there's also interestingly this idea of caring for something so anyway i don't know i think that's very interesting and then you we should always remember like when it talks about whoever receives one such child and then he you know delivers some good news or whatever well, you got to remember that the inverse is also going to be true. Anybody who's rejecting one such child is going to get, you know, like the opposite result. So you got to remember those things. But Mark adds, Mark and Luke actually, both together, uh, they add that to be the first or the greatest, that you have to intentionally choose to be last or least among all, even the servant of all. Which, I mean, it seems like this is what we've been talking about in the entire podcast, Samuel. In a sense, we're making others greater than ourselves by intentionally, purposely lifting them up above ourselves. And in some sense, you know, we're, we're receiving one such child, a person who, who has been able to do that. And it's kind of paradoxical. We also have to recognize when... Okay, let's see. We got to make sure we get all the parties in here. You may have a person who is choosing. You know what? I want to be the least. I want to be the last. I want to always be the guy who's lifting up others, doing my part in that. Well, they are the least or 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 the childlike or whatever. You also have some who through circumstance or maybe knowledge or this or that or whatever, they also are like a child and it's not by choice. So so any and all of these are included here. Uh, we have to recognize that all of these people, those who have by choice or not by choice, are the least among us. There's a great vulnerability in that. This kind of person can easily be used, taken advantage of, uh, even abused in the worst case. And it's important that we see that because we are not only to welcome or accept them, but we're also to care for them. That's to receive one such child. So in Matthew's telling, Jesus recognizes this, and he adds that anyone who takes advantage of these, these little ones, the least among them, and again, it could be by choice or not. You take advantage of them and you deserve even the most horrible and fateful of deaths. So not only should we strive to be the least, and, and it's not like beating yourself up, beating yourself down, but by lifting others up above us, we must also be protective and caring and watchful over those who are least among us, because they're all vulnerable. And again, sometimes it's not by choice, but sometimes it's even by choice. We have to keep them from harm, keep them from stumbling, keep them from sin. And again, community discourse, this is all about being the assembly, the body, the church, if we can use that word. Yeah, that last part, it made me wonder, I know that this doesn't fit super well with the first part of Jesus's illustration with using a child to show of the importance of being willing to accept 
your role within the hierarchy of God's kingdom. But am am I just imagining that there has been some teaching involved, especially on verse six, where it, it the the focusing on whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that that could also represent someone who is, let's just say, new in their journey of faith, um, that they're childlike in their understanding of God, and that since he's talking to the disciples, like they're within the the role of someone who is a caretaker of others in the faith, and that if you're doing something to prevent them from continuing to grow and pursue God, that that is what Jesus is referencing as like this great travesty that is going to result in, you know, some pretty serious judgment down the road. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great interpretation, for sure. And and uh, in some way, I, I was kind of trying to hint at that when I was saying that you've got some people who you know, maybe they are ignorant of things, or maybe uh, they're they're unable to do this or that. Uh, so that those are the kind of people we're talking about. They're they're little ones because they are in fact immature. They're like the spiritual version of an actual child. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I, I'm focusing on that context where he says, "Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest," and then. You know, the continuation from there. But yeah, what you're talking about, totally, I think that's a great interpretation. Yeah. Well, and then the humbling yourself like that of a child, there could be this aspect of how there there's this inherent nature within a child that they, they are completely dependent upon their, their elder, whether it's a yeah. biological parent or someone assuming that role. Like, yeah. that, that is just a natural part of the relationship between a child and the older person. And maybe Jesus is hinting at that too, to say like your role within, you know, a a follower of Messiah and ultimately, you know, a son or daughter of God is like, your focus doesn't need to be on how great you are. It needs to be, you have this sense of like, like every single second of my being, I am dependent on you, God, to give me life and capacity to do anything. And and that is what results in greatness because God is continuing to be present within your mind and your framework and every facet of your life. Yeah, totally, totally true. That's, yeah, those are really good images too. So, yeah. So this, I mean, this is this is kind of hard hitting. He starts out this so-called community discourse. You know, it starts out with like a big controversy. Hey, I'm greater than you. I was the one who was called Satan, you know, <laughs> whatever, right? So No, I'm dirty Dan. Yeah. So it's it's uh it's a it's a pretty tough start. Let's see where he keeps going here. Well, of course, we're going to skip outside of it a little bit. Again, we're trying to do chronological, and other people help us try and figure that out. Uh, We're going to go to Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, and Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. And this, I don't know, some people, they have some, I don't know, sometimes good arguments about how this actually fits right in with everything that we're talking about, and others, you know, they sort of feel like it's it's a weird little interruption or an insert, something like that. I happen to be a little more in the weird insert category, but doesn't matter. We'll keep going with it. 
Mark says this, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So there you go. I mean, all by itself, it's like, okay, interesting little section of Scripture, but it it may or may not fill out a place to you. I kind of think it feels inserted in the middle of a continuing thought, but it could also be that John, you know, maybe you read it as John trying to kind of test how far this idea of a little one or one such child goes. I don't know. Uh, it could be that, could be a clunky insertion, who knows. Either way, it, it does kind of interrupt the overall thought. And we'll talk about more later, but whatever. The disciples, for some reason now, they've gotten a little bothered. Uh, they're bothered because there's some guy and he's casting out demons in Jesus's name. That doesn't seem to be too much of a problem in their eyes. The problem, at least the way we see it in the text, it's because this guy is not a part of their group. And so they even tried to stop him. Quit doing that. And Jesus tells them to let him be. And there's actually a a very similar story from the Old Testament, Samuel. I'd like you to read it. It's coming out of Numbers chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? So, there's a story of Moses and Joshua, the exact same thing. Moses is, uh, you know, Joshua thinks, hey, that guy shouldn't be doing that. It's messing in your territory, Moses. And Moses is like, man, don't be jealous for my sake. Let the guy do it. I mean, if, if God's moving, let him move. So in our text, Jesus is, he's, he's reasoning that if this guy is doing stuff in his name, in Jesus's name, that it's unlikely that he would soon talk bad about him? I mean, okay, that's probably true, but isn't that a weird thing to say? I I don't know. Let's find out, because I think we're going to actually learn more. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but I had to go look this up because it was bothering me. There's a similar statement, and this is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Read that, Matt, uh, Samuel, and actually just the part I've highlighted there. Whoever is not with me is against me. Okay. Now, <laughs> wait a second. What was that again, Samuel? Say it again. <laughs> Whoever is not with me is against me. Okay. And this verse says, 
the one who is not against us is for us. <laughs> now, on one hand, it kind of sounds like they're saying the same thing, but they're opposites. And then on the other hand, I don't know, that it, it feels a little bit problematic. There's something weird about that. Somehow those two statements don't seem easily reconcilable. So in Matthew, some of the, uh, you know, in, in 1230, the one that, that I was referencing, the one that you read, Samuel, here's the interesting thing about it. There were some Pharisees who were saying that Jesus was in cahoots with the devil. And that's important. When did Jesus say, whoever is not with me is against me? It's when somebody was talking bad about him. Okay? And so, if you stop for a second and go back, what was it Jesus said? If this guy is doing stuff in my name, it's unlikely that he would soon start talking bad about him. Well, that's just the weirdest connection in the world. Hmm. It seems like in both cases, what's actually involved here is reputation. Now, we could, we could, I guess, maybe alter the two statements like this. We could say, whoever's talking bad about me is against me. And the one who's not talking bad about me is for me. <laughs> And that's the Kentucky translation. Yeah, I mean if it if it said it like that, at least it would be easy to make sense of. But the weird thing is that's kind of what appears to be going on behind the scenes. Or you know, if you use those two together, they seem contradictory and yet in a way they kind of bring the the idea to the forefront. So they don't sound as contradictory anymore, I guess. Uh, in some ways it makes sense. So Everything, and here's the the takeaway for us, everything that we say and everything that we do can do one of two things. It can either sully the name, Jesus, God, or it can glorify the name. So one of the ultimate goals of the whole big Bible story is that his name would be glorified in all the earth. And so we have to be vigilant about the Jesus, uh, you know, the God that we are presenting to the world through our lives. We have to be for him and not sully his name, but glorify his name. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of a cool thing because I, originally I thought, you know, he's not going to be saying anything bad about me. I thought that was a weird thing to insert there. And now all of a sudden it feels like, oh, yeah, I got it. We we need to be presenting well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he goes on, whoever gives you a cup of water. All right. So this whole idea of accurately representing Jesus to the world, what well, isn't just a big deal for us, it's consequential for others. And I, I, you could say as well, or you could say even more so. When somebody acts in loving kindness toward you, simply because they recognize that you belong to Christ, like giving you a drink of water, they can be assured of a heavenly reward. 
we might even say that by failing to accurately represent Christ, we are, in a sense, keeping reward from others. So there's that. Now, it doesn't matter whether we're speaking about a cup of cold water or joining in the work by casting out demons in Jesus' name, whatever. They're for us, and they're worthy of reward in God's eyes. They're they're glorifying the name, and there is reward in that for those and those affected by them. So, you know, we could all learn to be a little more accepting of each other as Christians. We know, I mean, what are Samuel? I mean, it's a crazy number. It's something like 35 or 40,000 denominations in, in the church, just in the, in the Protestant church. I had no idea. I mean, yeah, it's a crazy big number. So are we going to have differences? For sure. Yeah, of course we are. But the question is, can we focus on the, the, the parts where we're not different? Can, can we be more accepting, treating one another with love the way we're supposed to, even though we know that they're going to believe a little bit differently than us, act a little bit differently than us? This is what we're being called to. Remember, remember again, this is community discourse. This is life in the assembly, in the body, in the church. That's what this is all about. For sure. Definitely. And I'm going to say something, and I know for most people it's going to come across like, nah, duh, Samuel, but you you said something a few minutes ago that I think is an important detail to this situation that Jesus is addressing. You had said something like when people see that God is working through them on their behalf, on whatever they're, the efforts that they're putting forth, and we don't need to be hindering that. The, I think that key, the key phrase there is God, like there's noticeable, I, I don't want to say evidence, but um, effects of whatever that person is doing is showcasing the characteristics of God's attributes and what his kingdom is like and alleviating suffering and promoting compassion. That is different than you know, addressing someone who is using the name of God and his kingdom and his purposes to actually do harm to others or promote their selfish purposes. We're yeah. like, I'm not saying that we need to like, you know, address every street corner preacher who's yelling nonsense on the corner <laughs> and stop them and stuff. But I'm, I'm saying that we, we shouldn't also be passive to say like when we see someone doing something within that realm to be like, ah, man, I can't really step in because since they're saying the name of God and they're saying that they're doing things for God's purposes, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, my hands are tied. Like, I, that's not what we're saying. Like, right. if, if, if the person or group of people are bringing shalom to chaos in the world, like, they are for us, they are with us, and if they're not doing that, then, like, the the evidence is by their fruit, right? Um, if, if it's another way to say that. Yeah, and that's, it's a really good thing to talk about, Samuel, because, I mean, be a little more blunt, at least I think I'm being a little more blunt, there are a number of, of churches, preachers, ministries, and, and, okay, there's a bazillion of them that we'll never see or know of in our life because they're small, but the really big ones. And you can look at some of those, and, and some of them, you can see, yeah, uh, it seems to me that the one who's being built up isn't God. 
Right? But, but all of the lingo, all of the, everything they talk about, it's God this, Jesus that, all of these things. And yet you look at what you were talking about, the fruit, and you're going, man, I don't know. I, that doesn't actually seem fruitful. This seems like it's maybe taking advantage of the story and, and taking advantage of some of the little ones like you were talking about. They're immature and they don't know any better, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then you'll see other ministries where it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it could be big. And yet, man, I don't know. Even if I don't agree with them on, on certain areas, certain topics, it really does appear that, you know, on the whole, that they're lifting up God. They're lifting up Jesus. It's, it's more about his glory than theirs. And so you can't, you can't judge it by size. You can't judge it by the words coming out of their mouth. You can't judge it by so many things. But what you're talking about, you just, you need to look at the fruit. Mm-hmm. Who's really getting glorified here? Because that's, that's one of the main it's points it, of everything yeah, that God did. what it all did. comes down to. Yeah. Where, well, okay. Tell me, take a look here, Samuel. Oh, no. That's way too long. Uh... <laughs> We're going to have to, you know what? That's fine. This is a good place to stop. We're going to yeah, cut it off the, right here. It's the day after Christmas. Like, people probably still got lots of tryptophan in their bodies. They're probably <laughs> getting sleepy at this point. Like, we're we're doing them a service. Yeah. Buddy, I hope. I mean, okay. For you and I actually sitting down here making this recording, it is not Christmas. It's, it's a, little, a few weeks early. But I really do hope on the day that this is released... I am just kind of sitting around, feeling sleepy, doing a whole bunch of nothing. <laughs> that sounds so good right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get there. Happy after Christmas. Mer- <laughs> Merry, Merry post-Christmas. Goodbye. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.